from Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Benfina Radin, and on this show, I chat with people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. This week, we are in the studio with an artist. Hi, I'm Arthur Jafer, and I'm an artist and filmmaker. I have been wanting to sit down with Arthur Jafa on the show for quite some time now. AJ is one of those artists that is sort of a hub. It seems like so many of the artists I talk to know or have worked with him, been influenced by him, or all of the above. From his work in cinema to his video art, sculpture, and other mixed media work shown in a contemporary art context, AJ's work is often an embodiment of Black identity in America. And in many ways, he is a leader among a generation of artists, creating and defining a distinctly Black cinematic language. And as we'll hear in today's chat, this extends beyond his own work and deeply into the more infrastructural and business side of the film industry in the form of his project Sun House. I was really keen to sit down with AJ and hear his story because it's one that defies norms to say the least. And I had a lot of questions. For instance, on the one hand, from my naive perspective, it seemed like AJ just popped up on the art world scene only relatively recently with his acclaimed Love is the Message when it debuted at Gavin Brown in 2016. And ever since, he has taken on the art world by storm. But AJ also has this parallel life in film as a cinematographer, a director of photography, and a director, having worked on some incredible things, including Daughters of the Dust, Crooklyn, Seven Songs for Malcolm X, music videos for Solange, and much, much more. There are certainly more than a few artists who straddle both presenting their work within the context of cinema as well as the contemporary art world, but AJ is up there with the few that have done both to a very, very deep level. As you'll hear in our chat, though, AJ is quite modest about his achievements. However, in this host's opinion, I think that the fact that very early in his film career, he won Best Cinematography at Sundance, and in 2019, his contemporary art won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale, speaks volumes. From gospel music to James White and the Contortions, and from Oscar Micheaux to 2001 A Space Odyssey, we cover so much ground in this chat, and it was just so incredible to hear the full path of AJ's evolution from growing up in Tupelo, Mississippi in the 60s and 70s, all the way to today, and the full kaleidoscope of influences, vibrations, and inspirations that he picked up along the way. Before we begin, though, I have some really exciting news that I wanted to share with all of you. I have been looking forward to sharing this week's episode with you, not just because, well, Arthur Java, and not only because it's our 50th episode, but also because we have reached a great milestone. The show recently received a very generous donation from the Kramlick Art Foundation, and thanks to their generosity, we now have funding to ensure equitable speaking fees for our next 10 artist interviews. This absolutely wouldn't have been possible without the support that many of you provided to support our past artist interviews and also your support just by tuning in each week. So in addition to sending a huge thank you to the Kramlick Art Foundation, this week, I want to send a very big thank you to all of you for your support for the last 50 episodes. And now, without further delay, let's dive into this week's chat with Arthur Jaffa. Inevitably, I always start off with Mississippi because I was born and bred in Mississippi, oftentimes 
it would seem like people say they're from Mississippi and they mean their parents or their families are from Mississippi, but they actually weren't actually raised in Mississippi. I lived in New York for about 17 years, and when I first got to New York, it was really striking just how many people, if they would hear you from Mississippi, they were like amazed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like actually from Mississippi, you know, Northerners have some very funny ideas about being from the South. I really was raised in two places in Mississippi. The place I was born was Tupelo, Mississippi, known to many people as the home of Elvis Presley. So I grew up hearing Elvis Presley on the radio and having people talk about Elvis Presley and things like that. But I grew up in Tupelo. And when I was seven years old, my parents relocated to Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is in the heart of the Delta, the Mississippi Delta. In some ways... You know, it's hard to imagine, at least in the northern part of the state or the top half of the state, two places that could be as different as those two places were. Tupelo was the sort of model post-segregated southern town, and Clarksdale was, you know, even though it was on the books post-segregated in practice, it was still pretty segregated, you know? I think the thing is, if I had grown up solely in either one of those environments, I'd be a very different personality. But I think it was the travel between the two on a essentially weekly basis for much of my life that I kind of think defined certain aspects of my personality. In particular, I would say the sense of alienation or uh, being a stranger in a strange land a little bit. You know what I mean? I was always very, very conscious of context and how I fit into context and what was, you know, it kind of abnormalized everything for me in a way. Nothing was normal. When I was in Tupelo, the kind of apparently easy interaction between whites and blacks was something that I found very strange. But when I was in Clarksdale, the sort of almost like fundamental separation between whites and blacks was something that I found a little strange as well. I think the flux between the two spaces is about as key an aspect of my temperament, personality, what I'm attracted to, artistically or otherwise, as anything. My first sort of interaction with aesthetics, you know, aesthetic values and stuff, certainly, you know, are around Black music. The church I grew up in, that I was born into was my grandmother's church, uh, which was a Methodist church. And, you know, it was typical of many of the ideas about black churches, the singing, the choirs, the ushers, all this kind of stuff. But when we relocated to Clarksdale, after the first year there, my parents moved I and my brothers to a Catholic school, a private school. And as a consequence of that, we started attending mass and eventually My parents converted, and then ultimately, we kind of grew up in the Catholic Church, even though the first church I knew, as I said, was a Methodist and or Baptist church in the case of my godmother and things like that. So also was that same thing as well. The fluctuation between the Black church and the Catholic church was a whiplash. I would say my earliest two aesthetic experiences, I would say. And what I mean by aesthetic experiences, meaning not just an experience of like art or creativity or expressiveness, but an experience of art, creativity or expressiveness, where one also was cognizant of the fact that this expression was of an elevated sort. 
it wasn't a like kind of mundane or pedestrian expressiveness. It was something elevated. The earliest things I can really remember on my nervous system are kind of like Ray Charles and James Brown. My dad listened to a lot of Ray Charles. That's probably the first records I can remember him having. And James Brown was just such um, an omniscient presence in terms of Black popular music in the mid-60s, going into the early 70s. I mean, I still think James Brown, the single most Olympian Black music figure of the century, and being the single most Olympian Black music figure of the century means he was also certainly one, if not the most Olympian artistic figure of the 20th century. You know, that's consistent with my idea that Black music was the dominant cultural form of the 20th century, you know. So my parents took me to a James Brown concert when I was really young, like three or four, maybe. I don't have any visual memory of it. I just remember the vibration of it, meaning not just the sonic vibration that he was producing, but the vibration of the people receiving the music and how people occupied that space collectively. You know what I mean? It's something that haunted me as much as one of my earliest memories was going to the World's Fair in New York in 1964, which my parents took me to. And I would have this recurrent dream for years of my parents having taken us to the top of the Empire State Building and looking down, you know, at the streets from the top of the Empire State Building. Now, another thing that had a really striking impact on me in a more kind of closer proximity was I was at Howard University in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, I was sitting in a library in the fine arts department and they had, in addition to books, they had records. So I spent a lot of time just listening to things that I was interested in that I had read about perhaps, but didn't have access to like free jazz and things like that. But in some way or another, I had took out a Mahalia Jackson record. Don't know why. Uh, And was listening to it and had the strangest kind of response to it. I can still remember sitting in the library listening to it. I was haunted by it. And I remember it took me about a week before I finally called my godmother, Mrs. Herbine Reese, and said, hey, Miss Herbine, did, uh, did I ever go to church with you one time? Because she went to a different church than my grandparents' church. And before I could even get out of my mouth, she said, oh, yeah, I brought you to church with me when Mahalia Jackson came to Tupelo and sang in my church, and I wanted you to hear that. you know. And I can distinctly remember I don't have any visual memory of Mahalia Jackson, but I remember listening to the singing that Sunday and thinking to myself in a very kind of inchoate kind of way, but definitely thinking, wow, this is the same stuff I hear every Sunday. This is the same class of thing, but on a completely different level. You know what I mean? Just the resonance of it. It was like, wow. This is a dinosaur, but this is a T-Rex. And it wasn't like I didn't grow up listening to gospel. Well, I used to listen to gospel music on television, Oris Mays and things like that. In the South, they had TV shows coming out of Memphis that would have gospel bands playing and stuff like that. But not like, not like records or anything. So I didn't know much anything about Mahalia Jackson, honestly. So when I sat in that library at Howard and heard that music, it really had a kind of really intense effect on me because I, that was the beginning of me actually thinking through like what aesthetics were. 
It wasn't just expressiveness. It was a class of expressiveness or values of beauty, values of expressiveness, stuff like that. You mentioned sitting in the library in the fine arts department at Howard. So I'm curious how you wound up there. Can, can you connect those dots for me? Well, I ended up at Howard because I w- would make a decision about where I, you know, wh- where I was going to go to school. You know, I was it's embarrassing to say a national merit scholar finalist and things like that. So I got a lot of scholarship offers, but I strangely enough wanted to go to Pratt Institute and they were not that interested. <laughs> Whatever. My dad was like, Princeton and all these other places want you to come. Why won't you go there? And I just, I don't know, I just, you know, knucklehead. And I was just like fixated. And, you know, and like I say to Pratt Institute because I had just seen in a magazine or somewhere where they had like fashion designers coming out of Pratt. And then I knew they had an architecture program and things like that. So I think I was already sort of interested in being in an environment where I could check out a lot of different things. You know what I mean? Even though I had always wanted to be an architect since I was you know, really young, like four or five, I never wavered. I always wanted to be an architect. And so I went to Howard to study architecture. My parents kind of decided, okay, you're going to Howard. I didn't know much of anything about Howard. I think I would have probably at the time been not inclined to go to HBUC just because I had some very sort of warped you know, ideas at that point about blackness and excellence and all these kinds of things. I think a big part of my motivation to go anywhere was just I wanted to get as far away from Mississippi as I could at that time. I was really hell-bent on getting out of the South in a way. So I didn't want to go to Georgia Tech. I didn't want to go to some of these other places that, you know, were actively recruiting me and things like that. So I ended up at Howard, and in many ways, it's the single best decision that my parents ever made for me. And not just because of Howard. Howard was a phenomenal place for a young person to go, particularly coming from, you know, a Deep South background. It's such a rich repository and uh, black thinkers and creatives who've come through Howard is, you know, like unparalleled. But the thing is, it wasn't just Howard, it was D.C. As I said, the Fertile Crescent, you know what I mean? Chocolate City, (laughs) you know what I mean? It was a very black place when I landed there, despite it also being the capital and all that kind of stuff. It was a super black city in my experience of it. So, you know, I got there and it was just my best friend, Greg Tate, you saw, I was, sad. I was a little like Forrest Gump. You know, I've always had a knack of just landing in interesting places and had an antenna for interesting stuff. So when I think of D.C. and the time I spent there, I think of Howard and all the things I was exposed to there. But I also think of things like going to see the Bad Brains, a minor threat. You know, seeing the Bad Brains, like, I don't know, the fifth or sixth concert or something like that. I think they were mind power when I first saw them or something like that. So I saw them very, very early on, seeing Black Flag come through, the 930 Club. You know, D.C. had a very intense music thing. And I saw the birthday party. I saw Peel. I saw so many incredible things, you know. And then locally, you had the whole go-go scene, Trouble Funk and Rare Essence, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. My first intense exposure to reggae happened in D.C. It was the first time I was around by with dreadlocks, the first health food store I went to. You know, I can remember distinctly house-sitting for a friend of mine who was at Howard and was a little older than me at the time. So it was the first time 
I spent any sort of solo time kind of off campus or off of, you know, outside of Howard's footprint in a way. You know, and even just that weekend, the things I was exposed to, I remember me going to get the keys from her on a Friday, her walking over to the health food store, the incense, the beans and shit in barrels, tofu, all this shit was super weird to me uh, at the time. You know, this is like back in like 1980. So I just hadn't been exposed to stuff like that, you know, and um, getting back to her house and having her pull away and just looking at her record collection and having like, Alice Coltrane. I listened to a lot of weird shit. And she also had this book that Alice Coltrane had written called A Monument Eternal, which was a kind of autobiographical account that Alice Coltrane wrote about her experiences with Hinduism and spirituality after Coltrane died. Like all this sort of, it was very like Castaneda-esque experiences with astral projection, different planes of reality. You know, so it was a very intense kind of weekend. So for me, that was very indicative of a lot of the things that I saw when I got to D.C. D.C. had one of the most developed repertoire film theater networks, like, in the U.S., meaning, you know, at that time, like, you know, a Fellini film. Well, how could you see a Fellini film? You couldn't see it on on video. And you know, if you weren't in New York or something, it was really no way to see it when it came out. You know what I mean? Maybe you would see it on television. If you got lucky, I think the first time I saw Eight and a Half was on television, for sure. But all of a sudden, I get to D.C. in the Circle Theater repertoire chain. They would just print schedules like every three months and you could just tape it to your wall. And, you know, they'd have a double features, The Conformist and Before the Revolution would be playing for two days and then the next two days it would be like Sergei Parajanov's film like Shadows of Our God and Ancestors and double feature with Solaris or something like that you know what I mean so I would just go put checks next to things that I was curious in seeing and when it came up I would just go see things so I spent an incredible amount of time just sitting in movie theaters you know which again I say this is prior to having videos where you could just pop things in when you wanted to see them And it was just an incredibly rich and volatile experience of just being exposed to things, you know what I mean? And things that, like, maybe in some instances I had read about and other instances I had. And in a way, I was, like, slowly weaving together the things that I grew up around. Like, I came to appreciate having grown up in the South, in the Delta, in Clarksville, in a way, you know, afterwards, after I was out of there, in ways that I guess I probably couldn't have imagined prior to going off to school and stuff. Sometimes I joke and say the Delta's like the Black Jurassic Park, you know what I mean? It's like a place where, Black culturally speaking, you know, there are live dinosaurs roaming. Uh, I grew up in the midst of that. So it's also a place where, you know, some of the more violent occurrences of the civil rights struggle went down, you know, Emmett Till, all these kinds of, a lot of that stuff happened within the 200 mile radius of where I grew up, you know, within 10 years prior to me being in those spaces. So this was like fairly recent history, you know, when I was growing up in the South, in the Delta, you know, so it's a very charged environment. It was an environment where, you know, as I've said in the past, it's like if black music was a dominant cultural form of the 20th century, and Mississippi was ground zero for black music, then that means Mississippi is ground zero for, you know, 
American culture in the 20th century. So it was an intense place to grow up culturally, but psychically because of, I think, the intensity of people's experiences who had grown up there. I mean, the violence of it, the sense of communion of it, you know, all these kinds of things. But I didn't really fully appreciate those things until I sort of got out of it in a way, you know? And I got to Howard and just started reading intensely and having conversations with people who had very sophisticated and developed takes on what blackness and black culture was and was evolving into. You know, I heard the term black power when I was in Mississippi, but by the time I got to D.C., it had transformed, evolved from black power to black consciousness. You know what I mean? When I talk about getting to D.C. and seeing things like, you know, going to American University. They had an American independent film program, but the screenings were open to the public. So you can go and see. I can remember one night seeing Peter Kabelka's Anna Frainer, Scorpio Rising, and like, you know, scenes from Under Childhood, Brackage, all in one night. So that's a very intense series of things to be exposed to for the first time. You know, you're going from a white light flicker film to, you know, invocations of my demon brother. And then you could see those things in other places too. Like there was a space called the DC space. And I remember seeing like, you know, anger film programs there and things like that, you know. And then there was like the AFI was in DC, you know. So I remember going to see Hollis Frampton give a lecture and screen a bunch of films like, you know, Magellan and I remember Gloria and things like that. So, you know, it made the whole experience of being in D.C. a very intense and kind of surreal experience in a way, you know what I mean? Because you were just getting all this um, input in a way, you know. But that's how I was to go back to the vibration thing because more than anything, that's what I associate, you know, my early, like, 20s, you know, coming out of my teens into my early, you know, young adulthood. I associate it with being exposed to vibration, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you see it this way, but I hear this kind of very natural transition from a heavy influence of like music to film, you know? And I guess as you're being exposed to all this incredible cinema, it sounds like you really latched onto that and it was like really giving you a lot. Did film become the natural entry point for you for creativity? Uh, No, I don't think it was ever really... Like, you know, what you're going to do with something as a career versus what was actually actively transpiring in your body, in a way, were two different things. Because I was still very much studying architecture. So, you know, I'm doing my architecture classes and stuff like that, but I'm going out and checking out all this shit, you know. And then at one point I was kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to do this architecture thing. And my parents were like, well, you're almost finished. You know, and I was like, yeah, I've been reading, you know, it was like Star Wars on the cover of like Rolling Stone magazine. And they're talking about college educated filmmakers, which is not something that ever occurred to me, you know, really actually proud of going to school. And my mom said, well, why don't you take some film classes at Howard while you're there, you know, for your minor and stuff like that. And just kind of stumbled down in the film department at Howard and. You know, again, like this is a Forrest Gump thing, just sort of landed in ground zero in many ways in terms of black independent cinema post mid-70s. I think it was ground zero. Other people might argue with it, but like the whole so-called UCLA rebellion to me is the greatest 
single like effervescence of black filmmakers who were thinking about black cinema in ontological terms. That's how I would put it. They wouldn't necessarily put it like that. But, you know, who were not just trying to make movies, but were really actively engaged with the question of what was black cinema? What was it and what might it be? You know, which is maybe an even more important question to have. So I found myself studying with my mentor, Haile Garima, who was one of the three core members of, you know, the UCLA so-called Black Rebellion thing. That would be Charles Burnett, Haile Grimm, and Larry Clark, all of whom had a profound impact on my sense of cinema and what it could be. And so, I mean, looking back on it now, it's crazy to think about it that Haile was just two years out of having left UCLA himself, two or three years at the most, you know what I mean? So he was a very intense very passionate professor to have. And he also was friends. You know, Charles Burnett was his best friend. So very early on, I would see Killer Sheep. Like, we had to print. So I can remember the first time it was shown to me, I was like, this thing is fucking slow. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, But, you know, in time, just like, wow, this thing is really incredible. The first film by Oscar show I ever saw was at Howard. It was God's Stepchildren which is one of my favorite Oscar and show films, but it was introduced to me by a professor there. And he introduced the film by saying, now I'm going to show you what not to do. You know, and I remember looking at the film and thinking, yeah, this is pretty terrible, what he was saying, the colorism and things like that in it. But within the first 15 and 20 minutes, I was like, this fucking thing is weird and interesting. You know what I mean? So I became very interested in who Oscar and show was and ultimately went to the Library of Congress and figured out that there were things they had in their collection that you could see. You just had to reserve them. I remember talking to um, staff there and them saying, well, anything that you see that you're even remotely interested in, just put it on the list because we have to pull it. And it's better to have more things than you have time to look at and be able to go to those things. So I remember that one it was like a week or two after we got out for the Christmas holiday. But before I went away, I spent like a week and a half going to the Library of Congress and just looking at as many Oscar and show films as they had, as much Stan Brackage as they had, things like Edward O'Bland's The Cry of Jazz, which was just a title in the card catalog. And I was like, what is this? I put it on the list. You know what I mean? So looking at Kenneth Anger's films, looking at a bunch of Brackett's films that they had, quite a few things. They were all prints at the Library of Congress. So it was just like a 16 millimeter projector. And you would be in a little room and you would just look at the prints. And then like articles and things. Like I remember pulling all of these, like Oscar show had written in the black newspapers, like defenses of his films or articulations of what he was trying to do. And I remember reading the stuff and saying, damn, this shit is so articulate. Like the things that Michelle was talking about at the time, I thought were still like super relevant to, you know, the kinds of things that at that moment in the early 80s seemed like uh, critical for black film. So it was a very, very intense moment for me. But that kind of moment was kind of perpetual it just seemed at a certain point and like i said in hindsight dc was just an incredible place you know to be at that moment in time yeah one of the things that really fascinates me about you and your work is that 
you know, although I think that there are more than a few artists who oscillate between the quote-unquote film world and the quote-unquote art world, I feel like you are one of the few artists and filmmakers I'm aware of who is incredibly successful at both. You know, it's like you have these kind of dual lives in a way. And I guess I'm curious, you know, which came first? Like, did you eventually just go and pursue your career in the film industry and work as a professional in that way? And then presenting your work within a contemporary art context came much later? Or how did that all unfold? Well, I always feel like the first thing I want to do is like disabuse people of PR or things that people have seen before. I don't think of myself as having been that successful in film at all. It was just where I made a living, like a lot of people. I mean, it was like a vocation in a way. I made work when I was at Howard in my early 20s. I'm thinking this one particular video film work that I made called Considerations. And it was the first thing that I sort of made that consolidated and I recognized my voice in it, you know? And in many ways, I feel like I've spent my entire career, such as it is, trying to negotiate my kind of um, confusion about what to do with it. It was too post-Brackage-esque, in a way, seemingly to have any sort of application in anything like what you would call a movie theater. I couldn't quite figure out what to do. I knew it was an interesting thing and I knew it was my thing, but I kind of just put it aside. I mean, now it's the kind of thing you would just put on the internet. At the time, I just sort of put it in the closet. Like once I sort of left Howard, I never really finished, didn't graduate because Hiley sent me out to work with Charles Burnett on his second feature, My Brother's Wedding. And uh, I ended up being there for like four months, almost five months. Like I didn't get back to school that semester because I just got totally wrapped up in, you know, working on Charles's film. And then afterwards, Charles had been asked to direct a section of this film that Third World Newsreel produced called Mississippi Triangle, which was about the interactive relationship between white folks, black folks, and Chinese folks in the Delta. And they had a black crew, a white crew, and an Asian crew to go down and do the different sections and then edit them together. And Charles asked me at the end of the summer if I wanted to come down and uh, work with him on on the black section of the film, which I did because they were actually shooting in and around my hometown. So I ended up not getting back to D.C. too late to do school that semester. But, you know, coming back with a kind of very pronounced sense uh, what I was committed to doing, which at the time was being a filmmaker, you know? I mean, the architecture stuff had fallen by the wayside. I told my dad, like, Dad, I think I'd rather be a failed filmmaker than a failed architect or something like that, I remember saying to him. But um, I think my freshman year at Howard, the East Wing of the National Art Gallery had, uh, had opened in D.C. I.M. Pei had done the building. And it was quite an acclaimed building at the time. And the architecture professor sent the students down to see the building. It had a, a calder in the center of the building. But there was a show of Rothko paintings. I almost want to say they were from the Rothko Chapel. I can't remember exactly, but they were very dark Rothko paintings. And it just infuriated me, you know? I remember going up to see it and being like, this is utter bullshit. 
You know, these are just brown paintings, you know, and just being like angry. This is white man shit. This is some white boy shit. You know what I mean? This is some bullshit, you know? And I could not get those things out of my mind. I must have gone back to see that show six or seven times. So like the architect yourself just receded, but Rothko, still probably my favorite painter to this day, just blew my mind, you know, in a way. And from that point onward, I sort of educated myself with regard to the history of Western painting and art making and things like that. In the early 80s and 81, 82, my best friend Greg had actually gotten a job at the Village Voice and had moved to New York. And so I started quite frequently making the run from D.C. to New York. You know what I mean? A few days here and there. It was my first time as a young adult being in New York. I had cousins in New York, so I'd oftentimes be in New York in the summer. But it was the first time I went up on my own volition. And that was just a really exciting moment to be in New York, you know? Hip-hop was happening, graffiti, you know, on the subways was intense. Basquiat. I remember going up to see James White and the Contortions, DNA and things like that. Because I had bought those records down in D.C., I remember finding James White and the Contortions record in Georgetown. So I would be in New York and you would see, wow, DNA is playing. And I would just go see him play. So it was a very intense, you know, again, Forrest Gump kind of moment, you know. And then I went up and Greg had gotten to know and had worked with uh, Linda Bryan, who's always pretty mythic in our minds, but is becoming increasingly more so now and is about to do a big thing at MoMA this year about Jam, her art space just above Midtown Gallery. She so closely associated with and a sort of core member of David Hammond's circle and things like that. So I met David through Linda at 20 when I was in New York and things like that. And that's when David was just mostly working in the streets, you know, and didn't have an art gallery and wasn't showing in the mainstream gallery and stuff. So, you know, it was just an amazing moment to be there in New York. And I remember very distinctly walking with Greg through the city, very interested in the idea of being in the art world in a way, you know, or interested in the energy that was around. And I remember saying to him, you know what? I think I'm good, like where I am. I mean, I just turned and said, I think I'm good. Meaning, I was very excited about the kinds of films that I was starting to make. And uh, as much as I was attracted to not only Basquiat's success or access and the work, but attracted to the sort of implications of that success. You know what I mean? Like, wow, you could operate in this space. And as I said, I was very much autodidact in this respect that I actually started to educate myself around, you know, the history of Western art, certainly in the 20th century, and just start to look at things, you know. Again, it wasn't a split, like looking at an image, like a moving image, and then looking at a Soreau or Manet or Monet, you know what I mean? All those things were closely intertwined for me. And then starting to think about Picasso and Cubism and African art, reading A.B. Spellman's book, Four Lives in the Bebop Music, and reading in particular the sections on Ornette Coleman and on Cecil Taylor had a profound impact on me because that was the first instance in which I was exposed to black artists who were not just doing their thing at the highest level, at the most intense, in many ways, non-commercial level, but also with theorizing about what they were doing. 
Ornette had his whole homiletic theory. Cecil had his whole African gold black methodology thing, you know. And in particular, reading Cecil had, in some ways, the most singularly profound impact on my thinking around these things is because Cecil was so well-versed in the various manifestations of Black expressivity and Black cultural retention and things like that, as anybody I've ever read. But at the same time, it wasn't narrow. You know, it was like that and Nijinsky and modern dance and Martha Graham and all that. In a lot of ways, it authorized me to be as Black as I wanted to be, but at the same time, not necessarily meant that that was closed off to anything else. You know what I mean? At a certain point, Maybe I just gravitated to models who made it all right to be in the Cecil Taylor and, you know, music from Burundi and like the birthday party. You know what I mean? It just wasn't a split for me. You know, I liked what I liked and I was always very interested in the notion of why I like this thing or that thing. I was always interested in thinking through why I was attracted to the things that I was attracted to, but not necessarily trying to rationalize those things or authorize those things, just was curious. You know, why did I like Peel so much? Like, in hindsight, it's obvious why I like Peel so much. The shit was funky as hell, had dissonance, you know, had a bass player called Jaw Wobble. You know what I mean? Of course I like it. It was like the Sex Pistols crossed with Lee Perry or something. You know what I mean? So I think being surrounded by so many incredible instances of aesthetic actualization, emergent, actualizations and not have anybody necessarily creating a hierarchy for me about it. So, you know, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to choose between Kenneth Anger and Tarkovsky or Killer Sheep and Stan Brackage, but I always felt like my work was a very kind of organic reconciliation of any sort of fundamental tension between those things. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, sounds like this exposure and just deep obsessive immersion and consumption of just like all of these different sources of creativity and different ways of making and different forms of culture like this gave you this sort of confidence especially it sounds like also because you had this vocation that you were now pursuing and you were like there's this other way i'm going to do this thing and that's okay you know the art world isn't the only option. So what we're talking about is still so long ago. And there's kind of some dots that I want to connect here because your work within what, you know, let's call the contemporary art world, as far as I'm aware, and I might just be ignorant here, you know, it's my understanding that you pop up on that kind of radar in a big way with love is the message, the message is death. But (laughs) It's not that long ago. So I guess, like, what happened in those intervening years, you know, were you just kind of going all in on your career in film? Well, I would say, like, a sketch of the trajectory was uh, when I finished at Howard or when I dropped out, I married Julie Dash. We had a baby in 84. And I was very committed to this idea of black independent cinema. We were in L.A. for a few years and then eventually moved to Atlanta, mostly because my parents are there and we needed help with my daughter. And we sort of committed to producing Julie's uh, 
what turned out to be her debut feature film, Daughters of the Dust. Initially, we were going to um, work with a professional cinematographer. <laughs> and uh, we just had so little money that at a certain point, I just said to Julie, maybe I should do it. And she said, yeah, I was hoping you were going to come to that conclusion. So put my head down, you know, and kind of did it. I had shot a lot of shorts and things, but never anything in 35 millimeter. The only time I even touched a 35 millimeter camera was when I was loading film on Charles's project where I was a camera assistant was just loading the film. So it was a big leap for me. I didn't necessarily envision having a career as a cinematographer. I was very much committed to being a filmmaker. And uh, after we did Daughters, it took us two years to basically get it finished. Ran out of money because we just didn't know how to handle the money in, in hindsight, short version of it. Finally completed the film. It went to Sundance, which I didn't go. Julie went to. We just didn't have money for me to go as well. I'll never forget the call where she called me by and say, AJ, guess what? And I was like, what? She was like, you won the Cinematography Award. And I was like, what? It was crazy because I hadn't really shot anything since Daughters, you know. I had started to work a little bit on documentaries and things like that, you know. And that slowly became my sort of vocation how I kind of made a living. I mean, it was like the most lucrative thing I knew how to do. Most of the things that I shot were documentaries. A very close friend who very tragically died, very premature. Her name was Jackie Shearer. She was a filmmaker. She's the first person I kind of remember actually hiring me to shoot something. She did a documentary on the 54th Regiment for American Masters on PBS. And that was the first time I'd kind of been hired solo, you know, as a DP to shoot a documentary. And once I moved to New York, it's essentially what I did and how I made a living. I shot for a lot of different people. Eventually, Daughters came out and Spike. Initially, he and Ernest Dickerson came to a very, very early private screening of Daughters. You know, as they were going out, said, great work, AJ. You want to work with us? And I was like, sure. And I forgot about it. And then I got a call later that week. From Spike's office, Fort Acres say, hey, look, we're following up. A Spike is interested in you working on Malcolm X. I was like, what? Malcolm X? What? Like, what? What? And he said, they're interested in you working as a second unit director of photography. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> when Spike said it, I kind of thought he wanted me to work as a gopher or something. You know, as an assistant, I really did. It never occurred to me because it wasn't anything I was necessarily pursuing. And I was often, you can be as autodidact like insecure. I knew what I knew, but I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> I suspected I didn't know a lot. So I worked with Spike and Ernest somewhat tumultuously on Malcolm X. And then eventually afterwards, Spike asked me to shoot Crooklyn, which was an incredible career opportunity. You know, at the time I was shooting commercials and music videos with Spike. And he asked me initially to shoot Crooklyn, and I turned it down and said, I want to shoot features, you know. But in that way, the Spike super persistent, <laughs> you know what I mean? He kind of convinced me, and, uh, you know, it was a tough shoot for me. I mean, I think, yeah, we both would admit it was a tough shoot, you know. And a really close friend of mine said he asked Spike at one point, why do you think it didn't work out with you and AJ? And he just said, Spike said, AJ just needs to be making the films, which I think was a very, you know, wise and astute observation about me at the time. So I kind of came out of Crookland with a certain amount of momentum, I guess I would say. 
and attempted to manifest some technical things that I have been thinking about for a while. And so spent a couple of years trying to raise money by hardware and computer and things like that and failed miserably at that. That's why I say when people say I was successful in the film, I started laughing. This was like the golden age of making music videos, you know what I mean? MTV finally had started to wholly embrace black music videos, not just Michael Jackson and maybe one or two other things, but you know, you had Yo MTV Raps that transformed MTV. There was so much money floating around to shoot music videos and stuff. I was interested in directing, but working, I guess, as a cinematographer and never really had that much success at it. I mean, certainly not as a director. I was never able to really convince anybody to let me do what I wanted to do. And I remember pitching really hard to different people. But I sort of cobbled together, you know what I mean? A career such as it was. I would say by the time you start to get to the late 90s, I had gotten very um, demoralized around the film thing. It just didn't seem like there was any space for me to kind of do the things that I was kind of interested in doing, you know. That in combination with my own issues, mental health issues, limitations, personality limitations and things like that, just couldn't quite figure out how to navigate it, in a sense, and uh, got super demoralized. And just said, fuck this film thing. I don't want to do this. I'm going to do the art thing, you know. And pretty much within six months of saying I want to do the art thing, had my first show selected for the Whitney Biennial. Pretty quickly got offered a solo show, which I turned down because, as I said to the dealer at the time, I don't think I'm ready for a solo show. I'm not even sure what I'm doing. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I'm going to get back to you. You know, and uh, had some relationships with folks in the art world, which were incredibly supportive. Like, you know, Oquie and Wesnor introduced me then to Hans Zurich. Valerie Casals was one of the first people to sort of, she sent me out to Art Pace to do a residency. That was a tremendous opportunity. Larry Render was one of the curators at the Whitney Biennial and then became the head of the Whitney a museum at the time and was a incredible supporter. But what I found very quickly was that I just didn't like the art world. And again, I remember saying something to Greg, like, I think I'd rather be a failed filmmaker than a successful artist. I just got tired of things. Like it was super emblematic to me, like being invited to these parties on the Upper East Side and just being the only black face there. It just sort of sort of wore me out at a certain point because, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that I was only black face. There it was the fact that I felt like there was a tacit understanding that I would make a big deal of being the only black face. So you had to pretend as if the shit was normal, you know, or she would make everybody else uncomfortable and cramp everybody else's having. So it was very difficult to do the things that inevitably happened at parties, network. I just was super alienated from it, super turned off by it, and just kind of walked away from it, even though I had some very quick early success. A really good friend of mine, Malik, used to say, like, even after my art thing jumped off, he said, oh, yeah, AJ could have done that 20 years ago. Like, in many ways, the art context was a better context for me temperamentally. Was the film thing 
it was just always at odds, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I liked Tarkovsky and Stan Brakhage, and I was utterly committed to black cinema. So you combine all those things into one stew, and it's like not something that Hollywood's that interested in, you know what I mean? So the art thing just, I was like a fish in the water in a way, you know, initially, and then ultimately, as I said, I was like stepped away from the art thing after two or three years, you know, and just said, nah, not looking back and didn't look back. Just went in on the film thing, but didn't have much more success, kind of bottom out around 2010, uh, rock bottom, had some things happen, navigated them. Somewhat successfully, I'm giving a somewhat evasive and schematic articulation of that period in my life. But definitely hit rock bottom. Fall my way out of it with support, you know, love from people in my life, friends and stuff. Through Khalil, he'd been asked to do a project for ZDF around the March on Washington. The 50th anniversary was coming up. So they had two nights of programming set, ZDF in Germany and Arte. and they had asked Khalil to do a project, which he turned out didn't have the time to do. And before he gave it back to him, just handed it off to me, said, are you interested in this? I was like, yeah. I didn't even know what it was, but I was just kind of like, I'm not going to kind of go backwards, you know what I mean? So I um, just wrote up a crazy treatment about how I wanted to approach it. I look back on it and I just think, like, what were they thinking? But I think mostly what they were thinking was, like, they just didn't have a lot of time. And Khalil had kind of sort of signed off on it, you know. So I got to do it with little or no oversight. Got to do what I wanted to do. It showed at the Black Star Film Festival. Showed at the New York Film Festival. I thought at best it might give me some work in commercials or something like that. You know what I mean? And it was hard to do a thing for Google, which went south really fast. I found myself twiddling my thumbs in New York. Uh, with nothing to do and uh, put love as the message together in about two hours and then spent another two months after that like fiddling with it you know what I mean a week and a half or so after I had edited that first version of it I saw Kanye on uh, Saturday Night Live and the second song he performed was Ultra Light Beam so interesting so I put the music on after it was edited, tweaked it a little bit afterwards, and just started showing it with friends with the intention of putting it on YouTube. And all of my friends, Khalil probably more forcefully than anybody else, said, do not put it on YouTube. Do not put it on YouTube. But I was like, but I want to put it on YouTube so that people can see it. Don't put it on YouTube. Don't put it on YouTube. But Khalil had a copy of it. and. Uh, had started to screen it at the Underground Museum prior to their, they have this summer screening where they would show all kinds of things, but had started to show it as a kind of, you know, how they used to have the short films before the feature things. He would show Love as a Message. And I remember going up to the Underground Museum for, I think, a Chris Marker film or something. I never forget this guy standing at the door, dreadlock, white guy, and saying, much respect, brother. And I was like, hmm? Like, I didn't know what he was talking about. And then it became clear that he had been screening the film prior to the films in the series. And um, then he eventually was at Art Basel in uh, Switzerland showing his cut, the director's cut of Lemonade, which he had directed for Beyonce. 
And, you know, as I guess he screened Love is the Masters before that with no preface. And Gavin Brown was in the screening room and, as he said, fell out of his seat and rushed up to the club afterwards and said, what the fuck was that that you showed? Before before eliminate, he said, "Yeah, that's my friend AJ's thing. That's my boy's thing." So Gavin basically tracked me down. You know, a few weeks later, talked about coming out to LA for us to meet. I was like, "Oh, I'll be in New York in a week or so. I'm shooting a documentary. Why don't we just get lunch or something afterwards?" Shot the documentary, went up to Harlem where Gavin's space was still under construction. Met with him. Ended up talking four or five hours. He called me first thing the next morning, said, I think we should do this. I said, do what? He said, well, first of all, I think we should show this video. I said, well, you want to include in a group show or something next year? He said, no, I just want to show the video by itself, which I couldn't quite get my head wrapped around. You know, you can have a show, one piece of video, no less. Uh, And I said, when? He said, in two weeks. What? It's crazy to me. And it opened about three weeks later, you know. And uh, it went the way it went, you know. And even today, you know, I oftentimes get, like, younger people in particular who know a little bit about my history as a filmmaker or my sort of participation in the Black independent film culture thing. And they'll say, you you seem to have chosen the art thing over the film thing, you know. And do you think that's a more viable context for Black filmmakers? And I always laugh and just say, well, I didn't choose the art world. The art world sort of chose me fell off a bus and bumped my head and landed in the art world, you know. I remember seeing this show, these two filmmakers, Nick Ralph and I forget his partner's name. They showed these films at Gavin Space downtown in Chelsea. And uh, I remember going in there and thinking like, this is interesting. And this can show in the art context because they just seem like sort of documentaries, you know. But it had a profound impact on me in terms of what I came to understand was possible to present in our context. Even though, as again, like I said, when I did Love is a Message, it was the furthest thing from my mind, you know what I mean? It just never occurred to me. Like, oh, you should try to show this in our context. It just never occurred to me. But, you know, things like Douglas Gordon's things, you know what I mean? Like, where he would just show a clip from Taxi Driver. That was that moment where people were using film clips as, like, sort of ready-mades a little bit. And, you know, I had to get my head around that a little bit. The presentation of Douglas Gordon's work in the art world, more than anything, probably, made me kind of understand how many of my interests made sense in the art world as it was becoming and maybe now is currently kind of constituted, you know. But then this is the other thing, too. When I used to contemplate being in the art world, I was the first thing I was thinking about was video. You know, I was thinking about the kinds of things that my favorite artists were doing. You know, my favorite artists were like, on one hand, the whole black art thing, which was like a Negro baseball league, you know what I mean? David Hammonds, Jack Whitten, you know, Noah Purifoy. There were things that I had seen that had a profound impact on me in terms of just artifacts and stuff. Even I remember as far back as uh, the late 80s, early 90s, when we were working on Daughters, going down to South Carolina to scout locations and landing in the house of this woman, Vanessa Green, who we had met down there. And she had this book, uh, African Aesthetics, and it had all this Yoruba sculpture and stuff in it. And it blew my mind, like, as profound a sort of encounter 
as like maybe seeing 2001, you know, just seeing those sculptures and just feeling them on my nervous system and saying, oh, shit, I might have to choose. You know what I mean? Like it occurred to me then that I might have to choose between the art thing and the film thing. And this is, like I said, this is 10 years after hitting New York and Basquiat and all this kind of stuff. And this is like after Jean-Michel had died, because part of me saying I think I'm good where I am wasn't just in terms of the work. It was like a kind of, I don't know if it was just intuitive, but largely intuitive, a gut understanding that I might be talented enough to function in that context, but I had nothing like John michels ability to navigate it. And, uh, you know, he navigated it to a point, then it destroyed him too. And I was always a person who, you know, I was always more interested in being Mr. Spock than Captain Kirk, you know? So I was a lot more Balkan, I think. I mean, John michel and I are like two weeks apart age-wise. And I think so often about him and, you know, if he had survived and what he could have produced. But, you know, it's like Charlie Parker or Miles Davis, you know? I would always pick a Miles Davis trajectory over Charlie Parker. And the Charlie Parker trajectory is more what John Michelle kind of, I don't know if I would say he committed to it, but he kind of conjured it, you know? He would often say things like, I want to be the Charlie Parker in the art world, the Jimi Hendrix in the art world. And I had enough sense of my own limitations to never conjure things like that, you know? Because I just knew I wasn't equipped to survive the context. I wasn't equipped to survive the context at 40. Like, I was like, oh, this shit will destroy me. So I got to leave this fucking shit alone. But like I said, it just sort of tracked me down in a way. You know, I talked to Barbara Gladstone about this quite a bit and getting to know her in the last year and a half, two years. Much of what I discussed with her was, you know, what it means to be an older artist who emerges and how it affects how you operate, how it affects how you understand what you're doing, you know. The majority of the work that I've made, certainly the non-video work, everything else that's not video, in many ways are ideas that I had developed, thought about very intensely 20 years ago. I mean, there's a kind of Rip Van Winkle-ass quality to my art career, such as it is, and I definitely feel like a person who woke up in a way from a deep sleep, you know? And I can talk about this a little bit because it's things I talked to Gavin, you know, and Barbara about. Like, one of the qualities, I think, of my work is a weird, a little bit atypical combination of some of the energy that we associate with youth, you know, with, like, people who are emerging in their art careers, but in combination with a little bit of the gravitas you get when you've done things or thought about things for a long time. You know what I mean? It's a weird combination, you know, of things that I don't think is that typical. Typically, as you get wiser and more versed and understand what it is you're trying to do, you have a little bit less energy, but then you can do more with the energy that you have as you get older. But I, I still think of my thing as being pretty emergent and pretty volatile. And it's only been, you know, six or seven years since love is message so i'm not sure i have much sense of what my ceiling is so i'm pretty certain that nobody else knows or where i'm going it's a little unpredictable you know i love that yeah and that's just our thing that's not even in the film thing which is something that's very very quickly approaching you know 
So like I was telling you before, the only piece of yours that I've had the privilege of working hands-on with as a conservator is A King Done Cometh As. And uh, yes, I was hoping to kind of dig into that piece of it. I mean, basically in a nutshell, it was in some ways a response to the response to love as a message, you know? I started to feel a little ambivalent about the kind of um, seemingly uncritical response to it, like positive response to it. The kind of overwhelming response to it just created a kind of ambivalency in me about the actual work itself, you know what I mean? I used to say it was like a kind of microwave epiphany about black culture or the state of blackness, you know, from the art world that I certainly never imagined. And in some ways, it sort of actively pushes against the goals, against some of my sort of fundamental understandings of the kind of inherently alienated quality of black art and black expressivity and black people in general to society at large. You know what I mean? So there's a way where I started asking myself, like, is love is the message fucked up? Because too many white people like it. You know what I mean? So what's that about? Particularly something that figures or features so prominently like black death in it. You know what I mean? I started to have some real sort of ambivalence about it. So kind of very intuitively, I moved towards making something that was very much antithesis of love is the message. There were no shortcuts. There was very little sort of, you know, Ziga Vertov's editorial sequencing, you know what I mean? It just feels very much like a mixtape or something that was just strung together, you know? I also, like, put it in a show. And so my whole thing was, like, this is evidence of Black expressivity at its very, very, very highest frequency. And I used to say I would often look at it to just measure what I was doing against that. You know what I mean? To me, it required a certain amount of nerve to have an extended thing that had people operating at such a high level expressively and have it in proximity with the things I made, so to speak. And, you know, and I was thinking about everything from Zidane, you know, like Douglas Gordon's and um, Philippe's film Zidane, you know what I mean? Like, and Warhol and all the things that I always think about. And very much Gerhard Richter, you know, that E.B. Hill sermon in the very beginning of the film, it was said, it's so blurry, you can't see what the people are doing in the wide shots. And I was like, yeah, it's like the bottom line house paintings, you know what I mean? Yeah, like 100%. Actually, you touched exactly on a kind of nerdy question that I have for you. One of the things that I've always wanted to ask you about that piece is, you know, you being a professional within the film world, a DP and a cinematographer, obviously you are highly attuned to image quality. But in that piece, you know, everything is appropriated, of course. It's ripped from the internet and it's highly compressed and there's a lossiness. So I was just curious, like, does that have any kind of significance to you or meaning in the work? Yeah, but on a very eminent kind of level, you know what I mean? It's not a deep thing. It's just more indicative of my sort of very intense ambivalence about notions of quality. I mean, the most thought-provoking, maybe productive thing any artist has ever said to me that I remember as such was like in 99 or 2000, I was in the first international art show I was ever in. It's a show called Mirror's Edge that was curated by O'Quee and Wesner. And um, 
when I went over to Umia, Sweden for the opening of the show, I ended up on a panel. I was sitting next to Thomas Hirshhorn. And uh, he said something I never forgot. He said, energy, yes, quality, no. I've never forgotten it, you know. And I feel like oftentimes the things that people say to you that strike you are the things that are crystallizing something that you're already thinking about. You know what I mean? And so that energy as quality know is something I'm like committed to on a very deeply situated ideological and spiritual level. You know what I mean? So as much as I certainly have a very finely tuned sense of, you know, what technical excellence looks like in filming terms, I feel like it's very expanded, you know, my favorite cinematographers would be like Gordon Willis and Nesta Almondros, like on one hand. But at the same time, you know, I don't know if anything they ever did had as much impact as Scorpio Rising, where quality of the image has very little to do with any sort of technical quality of the image. You know, Kodachrome, that film stock that he used on um, Scorpio Rising is a phenomenal channeler of energy or something you know what i mean that actual film stock the way the film grain moves around the way the chromatic you know construction of the film stock functions all that's really incredible but it's not like fine grain it's not like imax or something like that you know so i like to think that mm, my interest in those kinds of things are almost how to reference somebody who i sort of have a love-hate relationship mostly love relationship like almost, you know, Peter Godal is materialist film sort of take on these things. Like you take these things and you divorce them from any kind of objective hierarchy of image quality. You know what I mean? And you just take it as a material thing. I used to laugh, you know, even as far back as Love is a Message when people were saying to me, like, you know, we can get this clip without the logos, like the watermarks and stuff. And I was like, why? It's not going to stop the film from functioning. And maybe it's cool, you know, that you can see that these things are reappropriated. Reappropriation wasn't the point, but it doesn't mean I'm not utterly aware of that aspect. Of it, you know what I mean? One of my central metrics of a work being successful is that it is discrepant. You know, Gary Marshall said when I asked him, was the difference between painting and photography? He said discrepancy. And if you read Nathaniel Mackey's writing on discrepants and things like that, you see, like, for me, the analogy I've always used, you want to make a work that's powerful enough that if a Muslim stood in front of it, they would fall to their knees. But if a Christian stood in front of the same thing, they would fall to their knees. Or Zen Buddhists would fall to their knees. Like, how do you make a thing that's not singular in its um, signification? You know what I mean? Uh, but is flexible and complex and dialectical and discordant and discrepant as a thing can be, you know? And that to me is very much in keeping with certain aspects of blackness ontologically, the mix, you know what I mean? The miscegenate thing, all these kinds of stuff. So to me, A Kingdom Coming Thaz was very much always that. It was always like, a series of Gurhai Richter paintings strung together. At the same time, it's a music video and a music documentary and a kind of a sociological treatise on black spirituality 
uh, when one of my best friends saw it, the first person I actually showed it to, first thing she said was like, if I didn't know any better, AJ, I would think you were a believer. And we both laughed when she said that because she knows I'm not, I'm a heretic or heathen. And um, so I don't believe in this Judeo-Christian theology or anything like that. I mean, even though I was raised in the church, as I said, but I do believe in Black people believing, you know what I mean? So in some way, it's a study of not what Black people believe, but how Black people believe, you know, which I think is at the core of a lot of what I'm trying to get at in my work in general. What is the nature of how we believe? And what is that superpower? Because I do think it's a superpower because I think our ability to be able to imagine something into actual being has been in some ways certainly a critical, if not the key to our ability to be able to survive the Americas, you know, our experiences as people of African descent in the Americas. So you have taken us on this incredible journey through your evolution as an artist and a filmmaker. But I'm curious, AJ, you know, what is exciting you in the studio these days? Uh, you know, I got two things. You know, I'm I'm still working to reach not so much a reconciliation, but a more complex actualization of my two, in some instances, polar, but maybe in other instances, unified interest in art and cinema. And in this sense, it's pretty consistent with one of my, and I think this might be generational more than anything, like greatest artistic models, and that would be obviously Andy Wall, you know, who both made incredible art paintings and things like that, but also made incredible films. So I never fundamentally accepted it as a split, you know, but I am definitely increasingly moving towards something very much like what you would call a movie. So I started a film company. We were just about halfway through our second year and uh, it's called Sun House and it's very much set up to actualize a lot of my long-standing interest in and commitment to how to create an appropriate frame for platform for black cinema. You know, we've developed a lot of projects we're super excited about. I'm going to direct my first feature in the late spring. It's very much with my long-standing goal to create, you know, a film company model on like Motown to a certain degree, to a very large degree. And on the art tip, I'm you know, interested in continuing to imagine new things, to make things that I imagined a long time ago, to be open to opportunities that arrive contingently, you know. I've kind of committed to creating a large-scale piece, sculpturally, certainly the most ambitious thing I've ever attempted for the Boris de Commerce for 2024. It's a very ambitious project in conjunction with doing some curating around the collection, you know, the Pinot collection. And, you know, I've never really had a show in Paris. So it'll be my first big, large-scale show in Paris. Yeah, so, like, in a nutshell, those are two things. You know, I want to keep surprising myself. want to keep surprising the context in a way, you know, on the art thing, but also very much want to make movies, you know. And sometimes people ask, like, like art films, I'm like, no, like movies, but also not with a narrow sense of what that is. Uh, not necessarily Warhol's Empire, but, you know, but not like uh, Merchant and Ivory either, you know? That's a lot of exciting stuff. That's awesome. So I wonder, is there any advice that 
you'd like to leave here for maybe up and coming artists who are listening to the show? <laughs> I was hesitant to give people advice. Basically, all I can kind of say is like, you just have to stay on your path, you know, and be committed to your bliss and the things that you're excited by. And those things invariably have to exist independent of whether you achieve any sort of commercial success. Easy enough for me to say now because, you know, I'm succeeding commercially at the moment. But but by and large, I think, and maybe this is metaphysical more than anything, like one of the reasons I'm succeeding is because I've demonstrated, you know, the hard way how committed I am to my particular vision of what Black art, Black cinema, and, you know, AJ's actual artistic visions look like, you know? I'm committed to that independent of anybody else's response, either positively or negatively, you know? And increasingly, I like to say my metric of successful work is work that is like Mount Fuji. Is that a good mountain or a bad mountain? It's a kind of absurd questioning. And what I mean by that is, you know, is Mount Fuji a good mountain or a bad mountain? A beautiful mountain or an ugly mountain? An excellent mountain or not excellent? You know what I mean? It's an absurd frame. I'm just more interested in things that are specific and concretely related to and attempting to, in some ways, render or embody what it feels like to be me. And so it's not so much any kind of like empirically good or bad. It's beyond a kind of value judgment of it. You know, obviously people are going to like certain things and not other things. But from my point of view, I'm just really trying to make a thing that has a certain heightened sense of maybe ontological integrity or something, you know? That it's a thing, and it's a thing above and beyond what you or anybody else thinks about. Well, Arthur, Jaffa, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was incredible and just, like, really nice to connect the dots with a lot of the parts of your story that I didn't know. And, um, yeah, just great to get to know you. Okay, great. Same here. Talk to you soon. Peace. And thank you, dear listener, for joining me for this week's show. As always, you can find the full transcript and show notes over at artandobsolescence.com. If you want to help support our work, there are multiple ways to do so over at artandobsolescence.com slash donate, including our Patreon, which unlocks access to all kinds of exclusive content, outtakes, and looks behind the scenes of the show. Art and Obsolescence is a sponsored project of the New York Foundation for the Arts, and support for this episode was generously provided by the Kramlick Art Foundation. Until next time, have a great week, my friends. My name is Ben Finaradin, and this has been Art and Obsolescence. Obsolescence.